is Bloomberg Surveillance. If anybody needs capable management teams for the future, it's the commercial banks, right? They're not going to go away. The business isn't going to go away. It's not a sign that the economy is not prosperous. Mm -hmm. The fact that inflation is only 1%, I don't get it. The fourth quarter was bad in terms of GDP. It wasn't bad in terms of jobs. In fact, it was fantastic in terms of job growth. And that's what's the most important. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keen. Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide. We welcome all of you this morning. Bloomberg Surveillance, brought to you by Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory. It can be hard to navigate through economic uncertainty, your business needs, industry insight, and transformative advice to drive it forward. Find out why at Cone Resnick.com, Michael McKee, the yield 1.78%, watching the currency market at 111.91, stronger yen this morning. Indeed, we're uh, we're looking at a 111.91 on the yen, but the euro is lower and the pound is lower. The only thing a little bit stronger, maybe the Australian dollar today, because the dollar index is down Uh Oh, very good. Uh, Michael McKee, thank you so much. And right now, Stephanie Rule and John Micklethwaite in conversation with Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates. Gates. Their annual letter on philanthropy. The question poised this year, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? They write, poverty is not just about a lack of money. It is about the absence of the resources the poor need to realize their potential. Two critical ones are time and energy. I don't think I have either one. Joining us now are the co-chairs. Bill and Melinda Gates, plus Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite. No pressure on me right now. Welcome. Thank you. Every year we read your letters, and they're very positive, very optimistic. This year is no different, but it comes at a time when so many influential voices are warning us of a global perfect storm. Why is it that you continue to be optimistic? What do you see that others don't? Well, I think we see the decline in childhood death around the world. We see when we travel to the developing world, which we've been doing now for over 15 years, life getting better for people. We see a rising middle class. We see so much potential and ingenuity in the developing world, and yet the headlines here are negative. But when you actually read what's actually going on and look at the statistics, life is getting better for most people around the world. Not everywhere, all the time, but in general, it is absolutely getting better. There's a lot of stuff, though, in, in the letter, though, which actually is rather depressing. You you use the Thomas Edison example, but it's, what, 150 years since he invented the light bulb, and yet when you look at Africa, you see nothing at night other than darkness because there aren't many electricity lights on there. And you talk about the idea that this could actually be the message to teenagers is that you have to come up with an answer to solve that energy problem. And I just wondered which of the, which of the particular energies you put the most amount of hope into. Well, it's amazing that we've got 80% of the world using electricity and almost taking for granted the magic idea that you flip the switch and the light comes on or you just set the temperature and it, that works. We want to get that to everyone and so getting the price down uh, by better science, better innovation and now with this constraint that as we add to the energy system we cannot emit greenhouse gases, so uh, the old ways won't, won't you work talk, You us. talk about needing a miracle to, to survive yeah, that. Yeah, we need a scientific breakthrough. Uh, we need a miracle like the personal computer, the Internet, or the mobile phone. So we need young people to think, okay, this is the science that's going to make a big difference. And we need R&D money uh, that drives it forward. Amazingly, for all the talk about clean energy, the money spent on the demand side, 
the supply of innovation, that's the R&D increase. Uh, people are just now beginning to, to talk about that, and uh, we want them to follow through. Well, you want to sort of bring electricity to a billion people. It's kind of like a electrical bringing power to the people. But let's say the lights go on around the world. What does the world look like in developing countries? Is there an education system, a health system, jobs for these people to have? Well, there's no doubt their labor has value. The health is our, our biggest area of expertise. That's what the foundation puts most money in. And there we see improving nutrition, reduced childhood death rates. And the, in uplifting a country to be a middle-income country, education, health, infrastructure, good governance, those four really go together. And so we're trying to make sure in Africa that the right things happen to help them get those four elements right. In fact, Ethiopia, if you traveled there a decade ago versus today, second largest country in Africa, you wouldn't recognize it. I mean, a really rising middle class, people moving into the city, starting to use more and more tools. And then in places like Tanzania and Kenya, you have things like digital money at scale. People are, small, are saving small amounts of money now on their phone and being able to pay the school fees. So in some ways, they're leapfrogging because they didn't have hardline phones. They're actually leapfrogging to cell phones. And that has huge power in women if they can get digital money in their hands. Do you still think the basic kind of gospel of free trade and capitalism, that, 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 that works as the way that this is going to go through? I think if you have good governance in these countries and you have consistently good governance, then you start to see that rising middle class because they make all the right economic and infrastructure uh, improvements in the country and then it just builds from there. Well, it's bad capitalism and bad governance that has so many people here in the United States frustrated. You are inspired to write this letter by speaking to students, teenagers in Kentucky. To those students, what's the message when they say, well, why not help us? Why not improve our education system? Why not help us get jobs? We're faced with a student debt crisis. Well, actually, the, the school that we were interviewed in is a great example of a school that has reformed. It's in Appalachia. It's called Betsy Lane. And we couldn't have been more impressed with the way that the teachers are using their new curriculum, uh, that the way the teachers are learning from each other. That's a big focus for our foundation. In fact, our money spent in the United States almost entirely goes to improving the education system. And we're seeing some strong points of light, uh, like uh, Kentucky started four years ago with these, these reforms. Then does it not surprise you that in the presidential race, there are these outliers that have gained so much popularity because we've got a disenfranchised country? Well, I think they're disenfranchised with what's going on sometimes in politics and on Capitol Hill. But then when you're out on the ground and you talk to teachers and you talk to students about what's going on in their school and they see progress, they're feeling better about what's actually happening locally. Billy, you're a little surprised to discover that you're, you're, not, you're not actually the America's leading business person. The most successful one is a man called Donald Trump. <laughs> Well, he's certainly in the news, and, uh, you know, he's, he generates a lot of talk and uh, interest, uh, you know. He doesn't look as if he's going to get your vote. Well, our foundation has done a good job working with both Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. Uh, George Bush did the huge HIV program. Very successful uh, Clinton and Obama have been very good on uh, foreign aid and being supportive of that. In fact, in the 2008 campaign, both candidates, McCain and Obama, committed 
uh, to generous foreign aid and making sure that things like malaria would get lots of resources. So we haven't gotten into the specifics in, in this yet. Can I, ask Melinda, can, I, can I ask Melinda one quick thing about, your, about the, the, start, the area you focus on, which is that area to do with um, unpaid work and the vast amount that, that, that girls and women right. do and don't get paid for. The one very obvious thing, I found that shocking, but the, perhaps the biggest thing of all out of that is what, what is the solution? We do need to have a good policy, I think, nationwide. We have it in three states, a paid family medical leave. Uh, California led on this. You've got New Jersey and Rhode Island. You've got the tech sector seeing it as a competitive edge to have good paid family leave. One thing I am encouraged about in this election is both sides of the aisle are talking about it. I think there's different ways of getting there. But we are behind. I mean, let's look at Western Europe. You know, they have amazing paid family medical leave for both men and women. And it says you can take time off to care for the elderly or care for a child. That makes a huge difference in terms of keeping women in the workforce. And we want women to be able to balance time at home and work. And one of the things I talk about the annual letter is the fact that there's all this unpaid work that happens at home that we don't even call work around the world, but it is. And so that's one policy thing that would really help in the United States. Are you afraid, if we're really headed, at least here in the U.S., into a recession, the R&D spend that you say is so necessary, the policy changes, could that fall by the wayside at a time when companies just need to survive? Well, the... That's a more negative view of the U.S. economy than I and have. what is your view on the U.S. economy? Uh, well, I see in the tech sector uh, amazing innovation. I see in the health sector uh, fantastic innovation, uh, whether it's stem cells or genetic editing. Uh, I see in the energy and material sector real opportunities for breakthrough as we're able to understand the basic physics of, of materials and catalysts. You, but you, but you, it's interesting you say that. You, you and I have argued about this for a long time. You look at um, energy and we keep on hoping for this thing to come through. And one reason why you call for a miracle is because actually all the things that we keep on hoping are really going to change, they haven't yet come through on energy. Energy seems to be an exception. Well, the, the ironically uh, for the the climate challenge, actually the hydrocarbon area has <laughs> been true. the most innovative. And particularly now that you have slackening demand, the uh, cost reduction work they're doing mm -hmm. about all the inputs they have there makes the bar uh, uh, tougher for the, the clean solution to come along. But energy is cheaper. And uh, because I see so many paths to get an energy solution, I think the chance in the next 15 years that we do get the breakthroughs is very high, and uh, that, that's an optimistic view, but it's, it's based on the, my view of the science. You have long-term views, and you take long-term action. Are you concerned that more and more of the rest of the world has fallen into this short-termism mindset and business practice? Well, I think one of the things we, one of the reasons we keep trying to push and to really promote the idea that you have to go long term is if you don't then you're going to have these acute crises what you're seeing in Europe particularly with the refugee crisis that's not just because of conflict that's because people can't find economic opportunity in their own area and so they get up and move so if we make the right long-term investments in these places people want to stay where they are if they can be healthy get their kids a, in a great education system and get a job so we feel like you have to always focus on the long term and we're always coming to that back to that message because of its importance you two live your lives that way. How do you make this a call to action for others to? CEOs today can't because they have shareholders and activists banging down their door, and regular Americans don't necessarily have the money to make long-term decisions, and politicians certainly don't. 
Well, the best governance is where you look down the road 10 or 20 years and you, you build the institutions uh, that will help you. The United States is the envy of the world because our universities, our national laboratories, in all the key areas uh, that are driving change, they are ahead. Robotics, IT, uh, biology, uh, any balance that uh, the United States leads in setting an example. Do you think that privacy is in the same stage now as environmentalism was when you, perhaps when you were younger, that it's one of those issues that the sort of people who are going to come and work at Microsoft, the sort of people who are going to work at Apple, it's, it's becoming as fundamental to them as greenery it was to a previous generation? Well, everybody wants uh, to feel like their information is, is kept private, particularly because more and more of your activity is in there in that digital log. Then again, when, put it all out when there, people though. are empowered by technology in terrorist activities, they can't, it's not just that they can kill a few people, it's through nuclear biological, they could kill a lot. So we do want the government to be out there trying to stop those things from happening. So it's not completely in one direction that, that you, you have to look it, at If you look back at history, the early liberals, they, the 19th century liberals, refused to open people's letters of anarchists and what were then terrorists because they were frightened that that would be somehow illiberal. Do you think the sort of definition of what liberalism is? You've generally seen yourself as a sort of liberal is changing? I, I think that <clears throat> government's always been there to try and maintain order mm -hmm. and having some awareness of what's going on. The UK strikes the balance different, differently than the US because there was some degree of terrorist activity. The idea of having cameras in London, people are comfortable with that. I don't think that's likely to happen in the US. The US will always be probably uh, wanting to make sure the government doesn't overreach it uh, uh, more than more than most places. You've used technology to help empower and connect the developing world. There are fears that that kind of connection does lead to terrorist type behavior. How do we manage that? How do we control that in a positive way and use technology for good? Bill, you yourself have said at one point, maybe when you were 14 or 16, did a little hacking. <laughs> but I think, I think we're, we're so focused on one, the one little time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tragedy when these things happen, but it's a, it's a small number of people. Look at the amazing stuff technology does. When I see technology at use at scale in Tanzania and Kenya and the Philippines, and you see people saving a dollar a day, saving two dollars a day, saying, oh my gosh, I actually during the drought season still have the school fees now on my phone to pay to keep my child in school. That has a profoundly different effect on society. You have millions of kids going to school and you have women saying for the first time, I actually have access to a bank account. I have my own money. I don't have to renegotiate with my husband over the household finances. That is hugely a forward positive momentum. So I think instead of us always focusing on the negative, we ought to say, where is technology enhancing the world, not just in the ways we're seeing in the United States, but worldwide? Well, to counteract that, what do you say when the woman from Flint, Michigan writes you a letter and says, you're making extraordinary advancements in Tanzania for those women, but what about me? I lost my job four years ago at a Ford plant. I don't have the skills for the job that they replaced it with, and my home is now valued at zero. What do we say to that woman? Who's going to help her? 
we say that both the coming together of philanthropy and government and private sector, that we do care about people in the United States, and we're trying to rebuild the country in those ways. And so that's why we also put money into the U.S. system, and we work with governments to really help retrain people through community college is one of the things we do, making sure kids get a college education. You've, you've got to do both. And we feel like with our own philanthropy, we're focused on the part of the world where most people don't focus, but we do focus in the U.S. too. Are you sure you don't want to run for president? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Thank you so, so much. What an honor and a privilege. Bill and Melinda Gates of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thank you. Uh, very good. Stephanie Rule and John Micklethwaite uh, there uh, with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates in a conversation without question the important discussion there of the Apple, I'm going to call it Apple and government uproar that is beginning now and certainly has galvanized all of technology. And you heard Mr. Gates uh, step delicately around those uh, many issues. We uh, have made a history over the years of stepping delicately with David Kelly uh, of J.P. Morgan uh, uh, with with all that we see of economics. And he joins us on. David, it's such a good uh, thing, and it's what we do with surveillance. to have Gary Schilling on and then you on. Gary has a tone of disinflation and deflation, he says there's a greater probability, not a certitude, that service sector inflation would roll over and give us a new element of disinflation in this nation. You aggressively push against that, looking at uh, the dragon not seen in, in decades, which is outright inflation. Where is Dr. Schilling off the mark? Well, I, I think you just have to look at the tightness of the labor market. I mean, w what we're seeing is uh, the unemployment rate's at 4.9 percent. There's a lot of nonsense spoken about how this is not the real unemployment rate. And if you look at all the other slack in the labor market, there isn't much good slack left. If you Home Depot didn't show me slack this morning. I don't know if you're aware Macy's of this. Did not. Home Depot, yeah. Thank you, Mike. Home Depot was like a Bob Goodman, your mentor over yeah. at Putnam a million years ago. It was like a 6% nominal GDP report. Sure. Well, yeah, and, and GDP is not growing that fast. But, but what we do know is that the capability of this economy from a supply side is probably only to grow about 1.5%. So if we're growing more than 1.5%, the labor market's going to tighten, wage growth's going to pick up. And, and there is such complacency about this issue. You know, it's, uh, as, I, as I said in a note earlier on this week, it, it's like this, this inflation dragon's been sleeping and we're stomping on its tail and we're pulling its whiskers and we think it'd be kind of fun if it woke up. I mean, I think inflation will actually come back a, a bit next year. And even as the Fed tightens, I think inflation will come back in the United States. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we shouldn't be too complacent about it. How much inflation? In other words, uh, do we have scope for, as uh, Bill Dudley and some others have suggested, running the economy hot for a little while? Well, you know, I, I'm tempted to, to talk, talk about inflation the way Milton Friedman used to, which is that uh, a little bit of inflation is like a touch of pregnancy. Um, <laughs> so it's, can you uh, say that on radio? I think yeah. you can. Okay. Yes, you can. It's just, you know, there's okay. nothing, nothing wrong with that it. at all. Um, but, uh, I, no, I don't, I think we can, yes, we can, look, we can run the economy hot a little bit, but that's not really going to deal with the basic structural problems we have. We, we don't have, we don't have productivity growth and we don't have labor force growth and we won't do corporate tax reform, we won't do immigration reform, so we're stuck with these problems. Running the economy hot will just, in the end, I think, cause the Fed to have to play catch up. Um, so I, I don't mm. mind them running the, 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 the economy hot, but it's not going to deal with the fundamental okay. problems. David, David Kelly with us. This is wonderful. What we like best about surveillance is the back and forth of uh, informed and collegial uh, debate. This morning, Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Invesco. 
Factor-based strategies can help investors focus on high quality, low volatility, and more. Learn more at Invesco.com slash high conviction. Michael McKee and Tom Keen, we're thrilled to bring you David Kelly. He is with J.P. Morgan Funds with an optimistic view on the American economy. Futures at negative five. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Coming up, the with all due respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event, Land Rover, above and beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Morning, it's 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. Economic Indicators brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. No 8.30 numbers this morning, but we do have a boatload of indicators coming out over the course of the morning. Starting at 9 o'clock, the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index. That is for December, so again, we have talked about that a lot, how that's a, a delayed number. Consumer Confidence. This is uh, the conference board. A lot of people are going to be interested in that uh, to the extent that it reflects what people may expect about buying plans going forward. Richmond Fed is out this morning at 10 and existing home sales, which uh, a lot of people are watching to see uh, for their knock on effects. Tom's been talking about Home Depot this morning. And, of course, as home sales go up, Home Depot yeah. does better. David Kelly is with us, J.P. Morgan Fund's chief global strategist. And I want to weave these things together because uh, while we were in the break, you started to say something about people looking at the wrong indicators. And I, yeah. I want you to expand on that. Yeah, I, I think that in financial markets, there's always a shortcut of saying, oh, well, look at the yield curve or look at how this stock is performing. And that tells you about the whole economy. And, and I believe that in order to see the big picture, you actually have to have a pretty wide lens. You have to look at literally all the pieces of a, of a macroeconomic model. You've got to look at all the pieces of consumption, investment, government spending. In the short run, it's all about demand, but it's a very wide uh, landscape. You really have to look at all of it. And I think a lot of people made a mistake earlier this year when they saw that, you know, the markets are down and there are some market-related indicators which in the past have indicated economic troubles. And they say, okay, the economy is in recession. The economy isn't in recession. It's not even close to recession. But the way you can see that is actually by adding up all the pieces of demand in the economy rather than trying to take the shortcut of looking at financial market indicators. We're looking at, uh, speaking of demand, um, credit, uh, you know, as part of this whole exercise. And I hadn't quite realized until it's been pointed out to me the uh, last couple of days, uh, for all the talk of a credit crisis out there, bank credit in terms of uh, loans, in terms of uh, Commercial real estate and C&I loans up more than 8% at a year-over-year basis in the latest week. Yeah, the, the, yes, and, and uh, in fact, in, in general, our banking system is extremely well capitalized. I think there has been a lot of reluctance to lend money, partly because of the, the need to build up uh, capital to deal with uh, 
um, you know, regulatory standards. But uh, overall, the banks are trying to lend more money. Uh, we're seeing that in – we're also seeing it in credit cards, which I think is very interesting. I think that that may be – What do you uh, see in credit cards? You're with J.P. Morgan. You've got a conduit to Mr. Diamond on this? Well, I'm, I, I'm <clears> not uh, – I, no, I'm not going to talk about uh, our Chase's business, but but what, if you look at the, the government's numbers on sure. credit card debt, they have turned around. And what's happened is for years, mm-hmm. the banks were just cutting back on credit card debt because it wasn't worth doing, and now they're yeah. actually lending to lower-income and middle-income people, and that's helping the economy okay. grow. Okay, David Kelly, help us then with the general idea that things are pretty good, Home Depot's good, credit cards are good, the stock market's actually had a hell of a run here the last number yeah. of days, and the cacophony of fears wrapped around us. Most Americans don't know how to spell Brexit. We're learning too quickly. Mm-hmm. How do you adapt to the noise that's out there, given the underlying good economy? Well, it, it, it's a tough job. Uh, because not only do we have uh, have all the, the foreign issues, we also have a very heated election campaign. And, of course, from all sides, the last thing you want to say is that you're pro the establishment or, or that you think things will muddle through and be okay. So you have to talk about why everything is going in a terribly wrong direction and needs to be fixed. I think that is actually stoking fear. Uh, but there is there's a, a lack of fundamental understanding of what's actually going on in the economy. Um, I, I don't think good news never gets much coverage, and I, I think people just uh, <laughs> hear all the fear stories. There's a, a a commentary out from BlackRock this morning that says in, in, investors, bond traders, are underestimating the Fed. They're going to get hammered because the Fed is going to be forced by inflation and economic data to raise interest rates more in 2016 than the zero times the market is now expecting. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, but I think it's very important to understand what the futures market is, is not telling us. Um, futures markets are derivative markets. Derivative markets are anchored by arbitrage to cash markets. If you have a completely distorted fixed income market because the actions of central banks all over the world buying long-term bonds and you have a central bank which, of course, anchors the short end, then you've got a distorted cash market. A distorted cash market is actually leading to a distorted derivative market. So the Fed Fund's futures market is not really what the average person on Wall Street or even the average bond trader thinks is going to happen. Brilliantly explained, and it goes back to within these distortions, no one within economics, finance, or investment knows where the risk-free rate is. We, it, it's been destroyed. When do we get it back? Well, I'd, I'd certainly like to see it come back. I think, I think there's this, this nonsensical notion that, the, that somehow the equilibrium or the neutral federal funds rate has fallen to some level. I don't think the Federal Reserve really understands how – the federal funds rate actually impacts the economy or, or how that short-term interest rate impacts the economy. I think the whole concept of a low neutral rate on it, um, just, you know, if you actually examine it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's kind of a complicated subject, but it's, uh, we, we really don't know where it is. And I, I think that saying that it's that low is, is probably wrong. You know, let's come back. I think this is really important. Mike, I think we need to update the markets here. There's a churn to the markets, but some real subtleties within it. Look at oil, Mike. You just can't figure out what to do. There was some legit green in oil today, really buttressing up against all the weeks, even months of resistance, and it's just ebbed back. Brent in Europe rounded up to 35 a barrel, 34.61. I'm stretching there, folks. That's a joke. But there it is, Brent down fractionally, West Texas down 36 cents. Oil, or rather gold, rebounds 14, $13, 12.23 the ounce. Uh, uh, this morning, Mike and I are watching yen stronger, much stronger earlier, 112. 
uh, 06 on a strong end. That's certainly anti-abinomics. We're going to come back. David Kelly with us with J.P. Morgan uh, Funds with Futures Negative 4. This hour of surveillance brought to you by Mazda White Plains. Visit MazdaWhitePlains.com. Here's John Tucker with the latest news headlines. And Michael and Tom, Republican presidential candidates led by Donald Trump, are drawing cheers in Nevada by bashing China's policies. Even as that nation's tourism, trade, and investment help lift the state from the worst economic decline in the U.S., Chinese commerce has boosted Nevada's tourism and mining industries and money from China's backing a billion-dollar auto plant under construction in the state. A Chinese foreign minister meets with Secretary of State John Kerry for talks this week as each country accuses the other of escalating military tensions in the Western Pacific. The lens the world uses to watch for El Nino events has become a bit fuzzier after Japan cut by about half the number of buoys in the Western Pacific that monitor changes in the ocean. It will take another four to five offline next year. It's a money-saving move. And Michigan and California, each proposing crumbling World War II military sites as ideal locations to test robot cars. Michigan's secret weapon? Better potholes. The Great Lakes State plans to make a test track out of a decrepit 330-acre industrial ghost town. It says will mimic real-world driving conditions. <laughs> that is true. true. <laughs> we call that 58th Street in New York. Oh, easy now. Global News 24 hours a day, powered by 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. Michael and Tomas. Thank you, John. Time now for the Ray Catino Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with John Stashauer. John. Mike, it was exactly five years ago that the Knicks acquired Carmelo Anthony from Denver. Since then, he's played for four coaches with three general managers and countless teammates. Anthony, who decided to re-sign when he was a free agent, said last night it is challenging to stay positive. A 12th Nick loss in the last 14 games, eighth in the last nine. Toronto won going away at the Garden, 122-95. to Huge night for Kyle Lowry, the kind of point guard the Knicks desperately need. He had 22 points at a triple-double. Knicks coach Kurt Rambis on his defense, or lack thereof. We couldn't find ways to stop him in, in, in our half-court defense, and a lot of that's just pick and rolls. You know, we just can't stop the ball. Uh, and there's a, a, a big part of our communication disappeared in this ball game. Our multiple efforts disappeared in this ball game. But we've got to do a much better job of putting pressure on the ball so that these guards just can't get these great heads of steam. Raptors have won 16 of 19, and with Cleveland losing at home to Detroit, the Raptors are just three out in the East. The Nets won't be back home till mid-March. They start a nine-game trip tonight at Portland. The Rangers will again be without Captain Ryan McDonough tonight. They visit the Devils, who've lost their last three. College hoops, Iona got 32 points from A.J. English, an 87-81 win at Siena. Gales are just a game behind Monmouth and the Mac. The Jets save $8 million of their salary cap by releasing cornerback Antonio Cromartie one year into a four-year contract that was not guaranteed. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashauer. Uh, John, thanks so much. Uh, uh, Jamie Dimon speaking at an Investor Day conference. Um, I, 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 this dovetails into our discussion. We'll continue this forward here uh, in our next section. Uh, Mr. Diamond says U.S. consumer is, quote, the big winner from low oil prices. The counterfactual of that's great, which is if oil prices have been higher, where would we be right now? But uh, maybe we can see some actual tangible evidence as we migrate through the summer on new low oil prices. Oil, 33.17, a barrel down 21 cents. Brent, fractionally green as well. We are with David Kelly of J.P. Morgan. Stay with us. Bloomberg Surveillance. 
The sports report brought to you by Ray Katina Auto Group. Everyone deserves to drive a Mercedes-Benz from Ray Katina. Make it happen at Ray Katina Motor Car and Edison Ray Katina of Union and the new Ray Katina Freehold or go to RayKatina.com. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by CBOE RMC. Come to the CBOE Risk Management Conference February 29th to March 2nd at the Hyatt Regency, Coconut Point, Florida. Register and learn more at CBOERMCUS.com. Macy's is up about 6% this morning, the largest U.S. department store chain posting fourth-quarter results that beat analysts' estimates after sales declined less than projected. Home Depot is up more than 3.5% after posting fourth-quarter profit that topped analysts' estimates, showing consumers are still willing to spend on their houses. European stocks, meanwhile, are lower with emerging markets after the People's Bank of China reduced the yuan's reference rate by the most in six weeks. Futures, they're little changed. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures down two points. Dow E-mini futures up six. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 12. The DAX in Germany is down seven tenths percent. The 10-year Treasury is down 11.30 seconds. The yield 1.79 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.76 percent. NYMEX crude oil down four tenths percent or 13 cents to 33.26 a barrel. COMEX gold is up 1.1 percent or $13.30 to 12.23.40 an ounce. The euro's at a dollar ten twelve. The yen one twelve point oh six, and we do see a headline crossing the Bloomberg here. The LSE and Deutsche Börse confirming detailed talks on a potential merger, and we'll have more on that story as it becomes available. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you so much. It is eight forty eight on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Justin Fox, columnist for Bloomberg View. The crisis was caused by oversaturated markets, currency devaluations, and a lopsided balance of payments. China was producing more manufactured goods than Westerners could pay for. Money supply complications made things worse. The changing climate may have played a role, too. This is a description not of our current economic troubles, but of the financial crisis and economic depression that hit countries from China to France in the 15th century. I've been learning about it from Peter Frankopan's just-published book, The Silk Roads, A New History of the World. One shouldn't make too much of the parallels with the present. This is the 1400s we're talking about, after all. But as we continue to struggle with the lingering aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, it is fascinating to learn that trade imbalances between China and the West have brought trouble before, and to be reminded that monetary policy problems are nothing new. We have been going through these crises for centuries. They usually take a long time to recover from, and sometimes they bring big economic shifts. Wonder what they'll be writing about our troubles 600 years from now. I'm Justin Fox, a columnist for Bloomberg View. For more Bloomberg opinion and commentary, please go to BloombergView.com or ViewGo on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. Bloomberg View commentary can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Mike, I had a delay there because I was contemplating one day there will only be one market. Yes, 
uh, Keen Stock Exchange Incorporated. Right now, uh, two markets look like they are going to get together. Yeah, serious stock headlines. Exchange with a headline, uh, a, a statement out just a few moments ago saying they are in advanced talks with Deutsche Börse to merge what they call a merger of equals. Mm-hmm. However, oh, yeah. the way the deal is structured, Deutsche <laughs> yeah, Börse holders would have 54.4% of the company, and the LSC stockholders would hold 45.6%. So it would be a, uh, a Deutsche yeah. Börse takeover, essentially, although the combined group would have a unitary board. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. say exactly what that means in terms of well, it says equal number of directors. There's a headline just coming out. They, each side would get an equal number of directors. No word on uh, yeah. management yet, but yeah. the headlines are just coming out. Sounds delicate. London uh, Stock Exchange shares up 16.5% over in London. Yeah, with some real price move as well. David Kelly with us with J.P. Morgan Funds. What, what is great about you, David, is you synthesize in economics into what we should actually do with our money. How do you synthesize Michael Ferroli and Bruce Kasman's terminal rate Coming down, the great J.P. Morgan call of a lower potential GDP, mm-hmm. lower yield. How does that fold over into what we actually do with our money? Well, I, th- I think, the uh, first of all, I agree with that call. Unless we see structural change in the United States in, in terms of labor supply and in terms of productivity, that terminal slower growth rate is inevitable. Uh, but the way I think you look at it is if we are going to have low inflation or lower inflation than we've seen historically, we've got lower interest rates, um, then we also should have a lower earnings yield on stocks, E over P. And that means that P-E ratios ought to be higher than average. One of the oddities of, of the current situation is people, people look at price earnings ratios and say, well, they need to be bounded, in fact, upper bounded by the, by the average of the last 25 years. At the same time, they say we're in a new world in terms of low inflation and low interest rates. If right. we are in a world of low inflation and low interest rates, we ought to have higher P.E. ratios in the long run. And if we have higher P.E. ratios in the long run, that does mean that equities have some room to move up from here. You look like Don Draper today from Mad Men. Are we going back to a 1950s, nifty 50s, into the 60s glory of growth? Well, no. Revaluation is an E over P. Well, I think becomes a big P over E. I, th- I think we, c- we, could see, we could see higher stock prices and we could see some reaction eventually from our political system to the, the real problems that, that, that we face. But the, the one th- similarity, I think, is that by the end of next year, uh, we're going to be back to the lowest unemployment rate since the late 1960s. I, it looks to me like the unemployment rate will come down to about 3.6%. By the end wow. of 2017, because of a lack of labor supply and continued moderate economic growth. You know, that, that takes you back to the age of Aquarius. Uh, so I guess that is kind of a Don Draper You reference. don't want Tom to look like uh, – you see pictures of Tom. <laughs> back <you>? then? <laughs> the age of the age of Keen. Uh, you and I were just talking a moment ago, in mm-hmm. light of all this, uh, that the economy is – better off if the Fed is raising rates some. The the idea that they would have to cut rates again or use negative rates or do something to stimulate the economy would be a big mistake. Yeah, the the number one thing that I think central banks are missing is that there is a non-linear relationship between interest rates and, and demand in the economy. If you raise rates from a very low level, you actually stimulate economic demand. When you raise them from a higher level, you actually hurt economic demand. It's a curve. I mean, curves occur all over in nature and, and science and so forth. But for some reason, central banks think it's a straight line. But the, the, way, the reason this is important is that if you raise short-term interest rates from low levels, you're going to add interest income, you're going to add to confidence, you're going to cause people to borrow ahead of higher rates. Um, and, and all of these things should help the economy grow a little faster. 
moreover, you do need to get back to a more normal interest rate so, so you can get back to a more normal monetary policy in the long run. So I would wish that the central – first of all, I wanted the Federal Reserve to move more steadily last year and to get rates going back to normal. But I still think they should move rates back to normal to at, le- at least – you know, uh, r- remove a lot of the distortions caused by this, this um, you know, ridiculously easy monetary policy, which I think is, you know, I think it's actually hurting long-term economic growth. Do, do the markets, can, can, can they withstand that, or are we so hooked on this that uh, we see another taper tantrum kind of uh, meltdown? But, you know, it's, it's like raising children. I mean, of course they're going to have a tantrum initially if you take away the candy, but in the long run, if you give them a better diet, they will be better, they'll be more well-adjusted kids. I think, the, I think the markets will survive it after a little tantrum, and they realize the economy is actually okay. enhanced by this. If we migrate within the linear function we have from 5% to 38 3.7%, 3.6% unemployment, to our listeners, they're all going, I don't believe you. But the next question is, will those be good jobs? Uh, I, well, first of all, I think they should believe me because if you go back to, since 2010, even though we've only averaged 2.1% GDP growth, and that's very much in line with everybody else's forecast from now, now on, the unemployment rates come down about eight tenths of a percent per yes. year. And that would get me to my 36 by the end of next year. All we need is a continuation of current trends. As for be, being good jobs, you know, I think there will be good jobs. To me, the real problem is, are there going to be good workers? We are, we are scraping the bottom of the labor market barrel. There are reasons why people have found it, found it hard to find jobs in this economy, but a lot of those are microeconomic reasons, which have to do with, um, you know, right. uh, and I don't want to go through the long list, but you can think of the long list of problems that people are having being actually well, well fit for the labor force. This that, has been that's great. a real problem. David, thank you so much. David Kelly with J.P. Morgan Funds. A lot to think uh, about. With a lot to think about there. indeed think about it. And, and again, folks, this is what we love on surveillance is the stark polarity between two smart people with two really different, certainly world views, but Mike, I would also suggest two different American views as well. Well, I love the fact that you had stepped out of the studio for a second during the break when David said, you know, all this stuff about the, you know, Fed funds rate and things like that is enormously complicated. And I said, that's why you're on this program. Because yeah, this it's is great. the show where you can talk about it and people can learn something. And you can get a measured view of the overlays of Gary Schilling and David Kelly, and there are many overlays, and also some of the very stark differences, just the idea of going to a 3.6% unemployment rate, which basically nobody on the planet is um, <coughs> excuse me, modeling right now. If you would like some enthusiasm, we will deliver it. The 10-year yield is up five basis points to a 1.80. We even finally, on this Tuesday, have some curve steepening. If you'll recall, in our last edition of Nancy Drew, the basic idea was curve flattening was out there, even amid a good equity market. Today, we've got a legitimate risk-on move, stronger dollar, equities up. Well, they're fractional. I stand corrected on that. But with a bond market acting almost normal, Michael. Well, they were listening to uh, David Kelly say that um, the the, the uh, curve is a false indicator. Yeah, well, it, it may be, but at least today I've got higher yields going with a steeper curve, which gets us much more back to uh, the normality of a five-day uh, working week. This is fun. We've got a lot of good guests coming up on economics, finance, investment, and international relations Another hour worldwide of Bloomberg Surveillance.